Um, I do have one more announcement, one more reminder. Um, on the 17th of uh, July, this coming month, we are having a baptism. It's going to be at Ron Pugh's house. Um, some of you have been there before. We've done baptisms there before. We'll have directions for you if you haven't. This is just a huge church-wide celebration. We want you. We would encourage you all to come out. There will be food. Barbecues will be going. It's just a big celebration. And then so far, there's about nine people going into the water. Uh, so, so um, yeah. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be awesome. Um, so make sure you're there. Stick it on your calendar. If you haven't been one of these, like you, you really need to come and be at one of these. Um, they're, they're a special thing. If you've never been baptized and Jesus is your all by faith, come and see one of us. It's, it's going to, I think, I, I hear the weather's going to be good. Uh, the river's nice. Uh, it, it's going to be a good day to do that. So um, come and see one of us if you, if you haven't done that. So, all right. Uh, Matthew 5. I can't believe there's this many people here today. I, I, I assumed every single one of you would look ahead and cheat and be like, I ain't showing up on that, that day. But you did. Matthew 5, we're going to take verse 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Are you guys glad you came? That's it. That's our text. There's two things I want to make very clear. I want to state before we get started. Number one. For those of you who have gone through, experienced divorce, I, I, I want you to know that I, I do not in any way want to come off today as insensitive or, or flippant or whatever concerning the subject. It's, it's a big deal. I get it. It's serious. It's painful. It's devastating to everybody that's involved, but especially to God. I want us to remember that, too. It's a serious deal to him. And because of how devastating it is to God, I don't want to misrepresent that which Jesus is declaring and revealing concerning divorce here. According to the law, which brings me to the second disclaimer, the New Testament has a lot to say on marriage, and it has a lot to say on divorce to the believer, to the church It has much to say to the believer in the church as far as how we're to view marriage, regard marriage, do marriage, succeed in marriage. This today is not that sermon. I just want you to know that. This ain't it. This is a different sermon. Okay? It is not my intent today uh, to, to unpack and fully exhaust everything the Bible has to say about it because I do not believe that that's what Jesus' intent here was in making the statement to a bunch of unregenerate listeners. Thus, this sermon is not an exhaustive dive into marriage and divorce. These words on divorce here are intended, once again, as a reminder, this whole section to crush us, to bury us, to bring us to the end of ourselves, to where we look into that perfect mirror of the law, God's law, and say, I don't add up. 
This is his intention in, in every subject he's taken, everywhere he's gone. It's to uh, let you and I know that we have failed, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, no matter what part of life we're talking about. And, uh, and, and, and I am equal opportunity, uh, in my preaching. And so like everyone's going to be mad at the end of this one. We're all in trouble at the end of this one. All right. So just wait. Okay. Statistically, when you're doing something on divorce, you have to have statistics, right? You can't not have statistics. It's just fun. 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's actually, uh, close to true in the church too. Same number pretty much. For second marriages, it jumps to 60%. I didn't know that. For third marriages, it jumps to 73%. So, so apparently, like, if this is true, uh, we, we don't learn how to do it better uh, as we go along. You know what I mean? Like, you, you would think that we'd, you know, brush up on our skills a little bit uh, on the next. Uh, apparently, uh, it's not good, you know, the more you, you go along. Top five reasons for divorce. 36.1% financial. I mean, not totally surprising, like our biggest idol, our biggest god, I mean, besides ourselves, is usually money, right? We, we look to that to, uh, uh, to, to be secure, right? We, we base our safety and our success and our hope on, on finances, and that crawls its way right into the, the middle of our relationships and our marriages, and it, it ends up being something that, that busts a lot of them apart. Finances. 45.1% age. People said we were too young. We were too young. Which I find interesting because we're getting married later, older than we ever have, and divorce rates are higher than they've ever been. I'm not smart and uh, I don't, I'm not a stat guy, uh, but that says something. Like, like maybe that's not completely true, right? But we, we know how it is, right? You got a couple of people that are like, I didn't know what I want. I was a kid, you know what I mean? I, I didn't know that person. They didn't know what they wanted. It just wasn't, you know what I mean? It was, it was, it was a premature call, something we shouldn't have done. 45.1% age. 57.5% conflict. Wow, that's a surprise. <laughs> that, that, you, that you get into a, a, a close relationship where you're sleeping together and eating together and sharing the same bathroom together and everything, and you're going to have some, some tension. Yes, you, yes, you are going to have some tension. That does happen. And, and so there's, there's the idea that if, if, there's, you know, if anything goes bad or there's any struggles or seasons of struggle in a marriage, that it must be a toxic relationship that we must get out of, right? And we just bail. We jump ship. We don't fight for our marriages anymore. We just see a fight and go, well, I guess that, that didn't work. i got to go find one that makes me happy. So challenge, difficulty, 59.6% affairs. Adultery. Um, number one, 75%. This doesn't even get its own category, but I'm just telling you what they said. Uh, lack of commitment. Uh, to me, that's the previous four. <laughs> it's the previous four. So, like, if you just forget that one, uh, adultery seems seems to, to be the one, seems to be at the top. And um, let me just say right up front that if we're if we're talking about adultery according to Jesus, this statistic 
of 59.6% isn't even close to what it actually is. And we'll come back to that. All right. Let's go ahead and look at the text. Two little verses. Jesus starts off in verse 31 with the same phrase that he's been and will continue to start off with, with, with each indictment that he makes here and has been making here. It was also said, right? In other words, you were told, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say... You heard it said, but I say, this is, this is the, the pattern, right? You, you said, or were told, but I say. And what, what's he doing by saying this? Six times through this section, he says, it was said, but I say. And, and what he's doing is he's making a distinction between what's been understood and what's been accepted by them as law, as opposed to what Jesus is revealing and declaring as law. It's a distinction. Being made, right? To repeat a statement that I made, I, I think in my last sermon, that their perception of law keeping was different than Jesus's perfection in law keeping. Different things. You, you have believed this is the standard, but actually this is the standard. Now speaking of divorce. Okay? You, you believed verse 30 that, that if you, or, or I'm sorry, 31, if you issued a piece of a paper to your spouse that you fulfilled the requirements of the law according to divorce. This is what you think divorce looks like, a certificate or for whatever reason, but this is actually what it looks like. And then he goes to unpack that. Again, Jesus, Jesus here is taking the law of God. He's taking the requirements of, of God's law according to God's holy standards and he's stretching it out to proportions that they cannot stand up under and that you and I cannot stand up under. It's too much, but this is actually his goal. This is the purpose of this sermon, of this part of the sermon. Once again, his, his entire goal in this section is to condemn every single one of us in, in heart and head and action in every area of our lives, which, by the way, does not mean the law is bad. I feel like... I need to be reminded of that, and I feel like I need to remind you of that. Okay, The law is not bad. The law is good. This is the problem, is that when we look into the law, it shows us that we are bad. The law is good. It is good for you and I, as believers, as born-again people, with the Spirit of God living in us, to want these things that Jesus is putting forth. We should want to not be so angry as to fall into murder, right, with people. We, we should want to not be angry with people like that. We should want to not lust after things and people that ain't ours, right? We, we, should, we, we, should, we should want our yes to be yes and our no to be no, as we're going to see next week in oath. Like, we should want our word to be good. These are all good things. The problem is that we, j- we just fail at them so much of the time. The, but the, the law is... Good. It is good. And, and Jesus is continuing to blaze this same trail of pronouncing guilt, but this time he's doing it in regards to marriage and, and divorce. He, so, so Jesus is not breaking rank here. Okay, he's not, he's not throwing out random thoughts to promote random responses from us reading this right now. And I feel like it can come off like that sometimes. He's not, um, and this is a big one. He, he's not 
Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, I think a lot of you might have been taught this. I was, I was taught this. Um, I think that, that the Sermon on the Mount or this section of the Sermon on the Mount can, can come out as like one part morality, right? Like one part do-goodism, one part gospel, one part inability. And it all, it all, when it gets taught to us, goes into a blender. And we don't know what the heck to do with it as Christians once it comes to us. You know what I mean? Because there's a little bit of go do this, and there's a little bit of uh, maybe gospel, which actually ain't right here. Uh, and then there's some inability, you know. And, and then we run out of here um, kind of just scattered in our, like not sure what to do with this. And, and I, I want you guys to understand that he's, he's not mingling uh, morality and behavioral modification and inability together to confuse us. He's simply preaching inability. That's what you do with this. So I know it's a hard one because we all want five things to walk out, you know, with, out the door with and go home with and be like, oh, I can start applying these to my lives and it makes us feel better about ourselves and application is good and orthopraxy is good, right? It's good. It's good for us to go and, and, and practice and have tools, right? So that we can better follow the Lord. But, but this ain't it. This sermon's not it. Jesus is preaching inability. Just inability. He's, he's consistently dismantling our perceived ability to perform fully that which we should do, but don't. He's deconstructing our moral resumes here. Okay? One of the first things we notice here in this text is that divorce probably wasn't as much of a unicorn as we thought it was back then. Not at all. Maybe we were taught it was. I think I remember being taught like they had, you know, a higher view. They might have esteemed marriage higher than we do. I don't know. But divorce was just as prevalent as it is now. If you look at the Jewish historians, you can look at Josephus. You can uh, read Alfred Edersheim. You can read these guys who are steep. No one knows those cultures back then better than these guys do. It, divorce was happening regularly for all kinds of reasons. And the only thing that was needed to activate it was a piece of paper. Sounds like today. A lot like today. Right. Even among God's people, this was going on. And, and, and of course, if it wasn't, Jesus wouldn't be calling them out on it right now. Like this was a thing. He wouldn't be making the distinction he's making right now concerning what were they taught, what they were taught as opposed to what God has to say about it. So so if the certificate of termination was not God's idea in marriage, right, was not God's uh, preference. You heard it said, but I say right, was not God's intention, why did they hold to it as if it was? Why was it given to them? Where did they get that from? And for us to get the answer to that, just flip a few pages over, same book, Matthew 19. Go over there. Has the answer for us. Matthew 19 Starting in verse 3, and, and what we have, just to kind of set it up, is we have once again um, a vain attempt on the part of the Pharisees and the religious, religious leaders to indict Jesus for breaking and mishandling the law, misteaching the law. This is almost kind of a follow-up conversation to what we're looking at in Matthew 5 today. This comes after where they're going to come and they're going to bring up this whole subject, this topic of divorce again. And it's funny because, I mean, it's, it's ironic 
that we always see these guys coming to trap Jesus, to bury him, and and it ends up just being inverted. Like Jesus ends up being the one that buries them every time. The way that he answers, um, he was just always a hundred steps ahead. You know what I mean? And um, and we kind of see this happening again. So they're trying to indict him. And uh, listen to what Jesus says here to these guys when they come at him again concerning marriage and divorce. Starting in verse 3 of chapter 19 of Matthew. Pharisees came to him, tested him uh, by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So so first we see these guys inquiring about the loopholes. What are the loopholes? Like where are the lines uh, that we can get away with with divorce? What's fair game according to the law? And what does Jesus do? What does he appeal to? He, he goes all the way back to original intent, to God's original intent with male and female, right? He, he kind of like just passes up what they're actually looking for. Right? Not, he, he, he doesn't deal with man's modifications concerning divorce. He goes all the way back to original intent. He appeals to God's creative order, God's design in his original creative intent pre-law. So he doesn't play along with the amendments that have gone on with the law. He goes to the top and he says, what God has brought together, let no man tear apart, which should close the book on the question of, like it actually eliminates divorce, that statement. Right. By the way, no man includes, first and foremost, the active parties within the marriage covenant. Like, you're, men, you're part of that. So it's not just people that are outside of the marriage that are working uh, tirelessly on the marriage to break it up or to, or to see it fail or to see it crumble. Like, like, these are the people in the marriage, right? This declaration, in my opinion, should answer everything for everyone concerning the subject of marriage and and divorce. Close the book here that marriage is a divine institution conducted, witnessed and overseen, united, consecrated by God should end any questions of termination. He's basically saying divorce should not exist, period. But they persist in verse seven. They said to him. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said, verse 8, to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Why then does the law give us a loophole and exit a way out with a piece of paper? Verse 8, because of their sinfulness. Because of their sinfulness, Moses granted it to them, but God didn't. In other words, before Moses was, God was, right? Before Moses said this, God said this. But but because you could not bear to follow that which God gave you in your sinfulness, Moses amended the rules. So uh, this is not a compliment. Uh, This is a handicap that he gave them, right? And it's... It's helpful for us to remember here that that God instituted the law and then the people of God went to town with it. Do you guys know that? Like like God starts with 
ten statements that really kind of make up our law, and then they end up not long after that with like 644. They, they, they would modify, they were really good at it, they would modify, they would add, they would soften, they would extend, they would embellish. I mean, they, they blew the law up uh, in a lot of ways. And, and in the end, the truth is that much of what became their law um, consisted of stuff that was self-imposed. It was self-imposed. Which is both stupid um, thing to do, but it's also convenient, right, when it comes to law-keeping, uh, for us to, you know, modify the law. Thus, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. But I say. See, these guys created uh, loopholes and they created exits and justifications for a way out of full compliance to a perfect law. Ways to feel good about the termination is what it was. Ways to, ways to get by after marriage is done. As if it never happened. But it did. It did happen. It happened on a greater level than we can possibly imagine. Termination of marriage meant something it still does to someone. To someone. Because God never designed, invented, intended, instituted disposable marriages. Convenient covenants. These guys thought the piece of paper was the validation, the approval before God for severing divorce, which is what divorce is. It's to sever, to cut off a marriage covenant. But Jesus is informing them otherwise. And, of course, he's going to say the same thing, chapter 19, verse 9 now, that we have back in 5. Look at verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. This is tough. This is a hard saying. Because what he's saying is any divorce and remarriage for any reason other than sexual immorality is adultery and thus invalid in God's eyes. Invalid. So this is indictment number one. This is indictment number one by Jesus concerning divorce according to the law. That whoever has been divorced because it got hard or because they didn't get along or because they weren't happy or they didn't have anything in common anymore or finances sucked, right? Or or because they just didn't, yeah, love each other anymore and they went and they got remarried, they're now in a perpetual state of adultery according to Jesus before God. Um. Do you guys know what this means? It means I need a drink before I do this next part. <laughs> this means, if it's true, and it is, all kinds of people are busted. Like all kinds of people are busted. All kinds of people in this world are busted. All kinds of people in the church are busted. Many of you sitting here today in this room are busted. The one who served the divorce, busted. The one who was served the divorce and remarried, busted. The one who married the one divorced, busted. Like like it's all the way around, this is bad. It's like one big law-breaking party, you know. 
But wait, there's more. It gets worse. Due to what we're reading here, hearing from Jesus, some of you right now, maybe you're tripping. Like some of you are like, I've done that, right? I'm guilty. There's others that are thinking, if this is true, marriage is stupid to begin with. You know what I mean? Like, like forget it. Like, why even marry? In fact, if, if we were to continue in chapter 19, this is what the disciples do. The Pharisees go away after the conversation. The disciples come to Jesus and they're like, this is not like, why even get married? He's like, you're right. Go be, in, go be a eunuch. You know what I mean? Like, don't. It's weird. It's a bizarre text. But he's like, yeah, don't. Others of us at this point, including me and my wife, can feel pretty good about ourselves right now hearing this text. Because next week, we will take our 29-year anniversary. We got together as kids. We got married. We've been together ever since. We have not divorced. We have not committed adultery on each other, right? We have not been sexually immoral as to earn ourselves a legitimate marital termination according to the loophole. We're still going. We're still going, and so we, we can feel pretty good about ourselves. And, and it, is, it is here where we can look at that which Jesus is putting forth and say, like, cool, like, we're, we're good on this one. Like, we, we passed this one. Like, like, we can get a D. Uh, um, we can get a D on the condemnation test uh, instead of an F, you know, because, because we haven't done this. We've upheld this part of the law. We've been married for almost 30 years, and she's been faithful to me, and I've been faithful to her. One of the greatest benefits of our current English Bibles is that it has sectioned off subjects and statements and phrases for easy reference, easy identification, easy accessibility. I think it's laziness, if I'm to be honest, and I like it. One of the greatest errors of our current English Bible is exactly the same thing that it has sectioned off subjects and statements and phrases for easy reference and identification, causing us oftentimes to break stuff apart in our Bible that's meant to be together, that's meant to be tied in, that's meant to be kept in mind. And this sermon has been parsed in our English Bible with big clear sections, definite sections in between each subject, right? With a big heading over each subject to let us know this is different. Right? So anger, boom, it's over here. It's got its own deal. Lust, boom. Divorce, boom. Oath, boom. They're all, they're all different. Right? And because of that, we might be led to think that what Jesus is doing here is random. That it's arbitrary. That it's even uncalculated. But what if it's not? I would submit to you that the choice of his subjects are connected, they are intentional, they are calculated, and they are in perfect order. In perfect order. That they are properly placed in sequence by the preacher of the sermon. Which is why I cannot even get a D. 
on this test instead of an F. And my wife cannot get a D on this test instead of an F. Nobody in this room or any other room can walk away from what Jesus is saying here concerning divorce and say, awesome, I aced that one. Let me read once again the text from last week. Verse 27. You have heard it. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If what Jesus says here is to be taken literally, and I believe it is. I really do. I know I'm one of those probably wacko expositors when it comes to this section of Scripture. I believe Jesus is being ridiculously literal. Which is why you and I, a lot of times, when we come to this part of the text, start doing metaphors and playing games with it because there's no way he could actually mean that. Right? Like, like if, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Like, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Like, cut off your members. We look at that and go, oh, that's a metaphor. And I've used it as a metaphor many times. I do not believe Jesus means it as a metaphor. He's being literal. He's saying it is so bad, your adultery, your lust, and it's going to place you in hell that the only real chance that you have, I mean, the only, for lack of a better term, other option is to actually cut off your members to keep yourself from lusting. Like, like go to hell, bad, cut off your members, bad. It's all bad. That's, that's his point. It's not good. It's not good for you and I. There's no easy way out. I believe he's being literal. And if, if what he uh, says here about lust is to be taken literally, that God uh, really sees it as adultery, lust, holds us to that standard for purity, then I can be assured that my wife has cheated on me and I have cheated on her. We can both know that for certain. He's already established that the breaking of the law in regards to sexual immorality is not dependent on the physicality of it. You and I think that way. God doesn't. It's not, it's not dependent on the physicality of it, but the intention of it. The intention is our problem. That's where the disease of sin lies, people. In the intent of our hearts. Whether we work it out physically or not, it's there. We do not have a behavioral problem. We have a heart problem. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. If this is true about us all being adulterers according to the law of lust, and it is, who then does this indict? In marriage. Everybody. Everybody. So what, what we have here is this double indictment going on in this statement. Now, I'm not a smart man. You guys all know that. But, but if I'm allowing Jesus to be consistent and to be truthful concerning what He's saying here, I know I'm going to get emails. He's saying that we all have grounds for divorce. Does that sound wrong? We all 
have grounds for divorce based upon his perfect law. We have all failed. We have all cheated on our marriage. Which means that even though I've been physically faithful to my wife for close to 30 years, I am a guilty adulterer. And she is as well. Which is grounds for divorce. Pastor, this is crazy. Like you're being kind of ridiculous right now, don't you think? Extreme, maybe. Is this not the kind of stuff that got Jesus killed? You know what I mean? Like saying these kind of things? Is this not what got him killed? A ticket to the cross? These statements, these implications, these indictments that he's making, they're too radical. They're too crazy. Certainly he can't mean that. This level of teaching that he performed, this level of insight, this level of revelation, this depth of guilt that he preached against mankind, that even where we think that we have succeeded, you and I, Jesus comes along and goes, you failed. This is you're much worse than you think you are type language, right? And, and I know how crazy this sounds. I know how crazy this sounds, but so help me God, I cannot help but to be convicted that this is exactly what Jesus is teaching here. That once again, all have sinned and fall short, even in marriage of the glory of God, because our hearts are wrong, whether we stay in marriage or whether we go. They're wrong. So when you see a marriage like the one that me and my wife have, where we're still together and we haven't physically cheated on each other, but we have cheated on each other. We are adulterers before God. Guilty on the grounds of adultery. But we stay together. What are you looking at? Gospel. You're looking at gospel. Some of you will not allow yourselves to wrap your head around this. I get this or to be convinced. So I will appease you with a more acceptable example. When I was six years old, we lived on this cul-de-sac. I don't know why that mattered. It didn't. Scratch that. Uh, we, we, we lived in Southern California. There was a time, there was a period of time when every day at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, all the elders from the church would show up to my house. I'm six. Now, I never saw my parents fight. I never heard them fight. Like, as far as me and my brother were concerned, like, they just had the best relationship, marriage, whatever you want to call it, that exists. We're good Christian people. We go to church three times a week, like, overdose on it. Like, it was our lives. They loved the Lord. And when I was six, there was this period where all the elders, there was like eight of them, would all show up in these cars and uh, swarm the house, you know. And uh, they were really kind to me and my brother. My parents would send us outside. They'd be like, all right, go out and play, which was weird. Like right there, that was the, that was the tip-off that something odd was going on, right? Like, get out of here. Go do something. And so we would go outside. And this went on every single day for like three weeks. Now, I didn't know what it was. But I know now. My dad had an affair on my mom with the church secretary when he was a deacon at that church. And it all came out. It all came about. 
And they were fighting for their marriage every day for those three weeks. And it wasn't good at all. And next year, they will take their 55th wedding anniversary because my mom stayed with my dad. And my dad stayed with my mom, even though she had grounds to leave. And you know what I grew up seeing, knowing that? Gospel. That's what gospel looks like. See, law says, like, so-and-so did this, so I get to, I get to go do this. Gospel says, so-and-so did this, but I don't have to go do that. My mom stayed. And I watched every year their commitment to the Lord and to each other get stronger and stronger and stronger into this beautiful, redemptive, God-glorifying testimony of not just marriage, people. Gospel. Everybody in their lives that saw it and knew them and knew what was up got preached a strong gospel and still are getting preached a strong gospel out of my parents' marriage. Because even though she could have gone, she did not. That's what you see when you see people stay. Even though the law says, you may go. That's very Christian. That's very Christ-like. That's very peculiar. It's a world that has no idea what they're seeing when they see that. It is radical. And it is beautiful. And ultimately, guys, it is why you and I are here. This is really what we're talking about. We all know Ephesians 5, right? It's like the quintessential like section on marriage. And, and you get into the guy's roles and what's expected of the guy in marriage and uh, by God, and then, and then you get into you know, the, the woman's role and what's expected of her and her role, and then you get all the way down to the bottom of the chapter. And Paul says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you a mystery. What I'm really talking about is Christ in the church. When I talk about marriage, when I talk about these roles, when I talk about this thing going on, the level of commitment, the level of love, the level of submission, all these things, I'm not just speaking of marriage. I'm speaking of the gospel. I'm speaking of Christ and the church. And do you know what that means? That means that the ultimate, Jesus will never leave us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. This is the beauty of the gospel that we love, right? is that he doesn't do that. Like, he's never going to come to a point where he divorces me. Where he walks away from me, which is bizarre because I, I, I give him reasons to every single day walk away and be like, you know what, like, I've, I've been striving with you for years, man, and it's just, like, I'm over it. I'm going to go find someone else. He doesn't do that. He stays. I have given him a million reasons not to love me, and he's not paying attention to any of them. And it's not because my sin ain't serious, it's because his love is ridiculously great. How can I, how can I enjoy that and not, not want to dispense that to my spouse? Now, I'm not God, he is. But man, that's the most precious thing I've ever seen and witnessed in my entire life. I've never experienced anything like that. I want to extend that. I want to be that. I want to live that. That's gospel. See, this is what Jesus is doing here. The law is doing its job to squash us and to push us down 
so that then the gospel can do its job, which is to lift us up finally and ultimately to the heavens by grace. This is what's going on here. Jesus is enough for you. There's a bunch of people in here. I know that probably 50% of this room has been remarried and divorced. And I want you to know, as you beat yourself up maybe and still have that guilt maybe as a Christian looking back or maybe regrets that, 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 um, that Christ is big enough to take care of that. You have become a new creation. All things are new in Christ. All things are new. We can look at divorce and be like, that's the unpardonable sin. No, it ain't. When he hung on the cross, he hung for divorce too. It is not the unpardonable sin. Christ is enough to redeem you and to call you clean out of your bad divorce and out of your illegitimate remarriage. Clean, new, fresh, restored, redeemed. God knows we all need it. See, see, people that have a big problem need a big gospel. And you know what? We have one. Praise God. We have one. We have a big gospel, people. So walk in the freedom that Christ has given you. He makes all things new. Thank you, Jesus, for the big gospel given to us by way of your blood and your body which we come to now in desperation and gratitude. There is nothing else that can fix us or repair us or cleanse us or forgive us other than that which came out of you. And so I thank you, Lord, for this table, which is you for us. There's nothing we can do to clean up or, or any of that. Lord, I've tried all that stuff. We try all that stuff. All we can do is come humbly and receive perfection. You. And so I pray that there would be great worship in the hearts of your people today as a result of you and your accomplishment on our behalf. Amen.